This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we're talking about American newcomers and English learners in schools. My guest is Dr. Maria Trejo. Dr. Trejo is an expert in educational services and needs of English language learner students, struggling readers, and equity issues for all students. She worked for the California State Department of Education as a top-level administrator in various capacities, and she has been an expert consultant to the United States Department of Justice in reviewing selected school districts. Welcome, Dr. Trejo. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Allison. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here and share some of my thoughts with you. Well, will you start first by by telling us exactly what an English language learner is? Yes. Uh, it is a legal definition for students who are in the process of learning English as a second language. Many of them come from other countries, speaking only their native language. But now we have reports that show that the majority of the students were actually born in this country to parents who speak a language other than English in the home. And so when they start their formal schooling, they still don't speak uh, English enough to uh, work in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. So how do schools typically identify students as ELL students or English language learner students? Well, um, since English language learners have been arriving in this country for so many years, I would say that at least in the last 30 years, most states have developed very formal ways of identifying students. They have um, census forms that basically answer two questions. What is the primary language of the child? And also, what is the dominant language spoken in the home? And if it's determined that the primary language of the child and that spoken in the home is other than English, then that child is uh, provisionally designated as an English language learner, at least until he's placed into in a classroom and they can do further testing. In some states, they do further for the testing if the child is old enough and they go into maybe some literacy assessments if they're very young, like in preschool or kindergarten, first, second grade, they might just go ahead and let them be in that placement until the teacher can decide whether or not the student can function totally in an English classroom only. Mm-hmm. So is that is that... Uh, the the typical way of identifying students, is that the most appropriate way to identify students who are ELL students? It's almost like the basic uh, legal requirement to identify the students in most states. Now, some Mm -hmm. states may change, for example, may have a different 
requirement as to how soon after the, the student arrives in the classroom do they identify or give them an assessment or a census uh, to identify them and place them. So it could be all the way from the first day they get to school to thir within 30 days of them arriving at the school. And it's usually the first time that they are enrolled. They don't have to do this every single year that the student is enrolled, but at least upon initial enrollment, that's pretty typical. So you know, I I remember um, talking about you know the typical way of assessing students and identifying students as ELL. I remember there was um, conversation about ebonics and whether ebonics was a separate language. Is there a way to? And do you think that students who are born here, whose parents are born here, but who don't necessarily speak what we understand as traditional English? should be identified as ELL students as well? Well, there was a lot of discussion over several years, both at different states and also at the federal government, about where to place the issue of Ebonics. And I think it ultimately uh, the decision was that Ebonics is English, but it's not standard English. So mm -hmm. assistance for those students are not uh, first of all, they're not identified as English language learners. And secondly, mm -hmm. the assistance for them comes more under uh, struggling readers and supplemental uh, services under programs like Title One or low socioeconomic status students or some other ways. But certainly the schools have to identify their special needs, just like if you have Native Americans who speak another uh, language or dialogue, um, in some cases, they might be English language learners, but in other cases, it just might be students who need uh, much more work on classroom language, academic language, uh, mm -hmm. other than what they speak at home or if they social language. Right. So when I was an attorney at the Department of Justice, we would investigate school districts that allegedly were not providing ELL students with adequate educational opportunities. Some of the issue, issues that we saw were inappropriate identification of ELL students or failure to move ELL students into mainstream educational programming, keeping ELL students out of gifted classes, just a few examples. What are some other specific challenges that English language learners face? Well, I, I think it's important to understand that uh, students who are learning English as second language, designated as English language learners, mm -hmm. really uh, have four big challenges. One is to learn English like everybody else in this country speaks, and that takes time. Mm -hmm. Another one is to learn academic English, book, book English that they need at every grade level. Another mm -hmm. one is to keep up with subject matter academic progress. And another one is to keep up with English-only speakers who are just progressing very fast because mm -hmm. they don't have to worry with three things. They just worry about the content of, of instruction. And so sometimes the districts think that they can take a shortcut and just give students English-only instruction thinking that 
if the student listens to English all day long without any specific strategies, but just English all day long, then mm -hmm. the rest will take care of itself. But it doesn't, because those are very specific needs. Uh, for example, when they learn to read in English, they got all those things to contend with. They have to learn social vocabulary, but they also have to learn academic vocabulary. And uh, if they don't understand at least 80 to 90% of what they read, they're not understanding or comprehending, so their comprehension is not very good. And so mm -hmm. that's why you have thousands and thousands of schools throughout the United States where English language learners are always playing catch-up, but in most cases they're not keeping up with the rest of the counterparts, English-speaking counterparts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, speaking of, of uh, language, you explained to me earlier, so you are in California, and you explained to me earlier that the history of the term ELL, or English language learner, came out of California in order to get away from the negative connotations that came with limited English proficient. Um, will you talk about that that history a little bit? Uh, yes, the first designations of the students were called limited English proficient. And uh, many uh, people thought it was a negative designation because it portrayed as if there was something negative about the student and he was always limited uh, without giving appropriate credit to the fact that in many cases this, many of these students speak already academic language in their own countries or in their own language. And they have academic preparation in their own language. So they're not limited in that respect. So what they need is to learn English. So that's mm -hmm. why they thought it was more appropriate to call them English language learners. They're not limited in English if they have never been taught. They just need to learn it. Mm -hmm. And they're always catching up because, you know, they start, they may start um, you know, middle grades or in any grade level uh, in our school system. But like I was saying earlier, so many of them really begin with us in, even in preschool or kindergarten. Most of them mm -hmm. begin with us in kindergarten. So how do you see cultural differences compounding language differences in in the classroom? Uh-huh. Um, well, cultural differences have to do with uh, the traditions of your home and the expectations of your family and the practices and beliefs of your families, uh, where language differences have to do with what language or languages you're learning. Um so, for example, in some countries, their belief is that once a child is placed in a school, it is totally the responsibility of the school to educate that child, and they give total difference to the teacher and to the administrators. Mm -hmm. And so in, when they place uh, when they enroll students in our country, if you ask them to just come and visit 
the school because you think it's a good thing to do, they may not see the real need to do that because, after all, you're the expert, so why would you need them? Mm -hmm. So one of the first places that it reflects itself is when you want to have parent involvement or when you want parents to come visit the children in schools or the students in school. Another way that it might reflect itself, the cultural difference would be uh, the celebration, of course, of certain holidays, religion, or as you get into the middle grades and the upper grades, the dating may be an issue for some students and it's really traumatic because mm-hmm, in some mm-hmm. cultures, girls may not be allowed to date so early, but then they listen to other children who are dating very early, and they think there's something wrong with their parents, so come they're not letting them uh, date early like everybody else uh, does. Mm. Um, another cultural difference would be the way they, uh, uh, the expectations that they place on their students. And all parents have high expectations for their children. It's just that they are manifested differently with certain cultures right. um, and at different uh, uh, ages uh, of the students. And then for the immigrants, now a big issue is a lot of the students may be, may be uh, in an illegal status, and they're always under that pressure and stress because under no fault of their own, maybe they came here uh, with their parents illegally. And anytime you want them to participate, like in certain field trips or compete for scholarships, they may, they may shy away. Or the parents may not want to participate because they have other issues other than schooling. And, you know, sometimes we in schools are not as sensitive as we could be to other home issues that are going on at the time with immigrant populations and, uh, you know, subgroups or groups of other cultural groups that are here from other countries. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about special education for um, English language learner students. Will you first distinguish for the audience language proficiency and disability status? Okay. Uh, yes, and, and also in my answer, I want to I address your previous answer of how do we work with gate, gifted and mm-hmm. talented children, too, because they are the other extreme, if you will. Yes. Okay, so language has to do with time to learn to speak academic English. Mm-hmm. A special need has to do with either a physical disability or a learning disability where the child needs certain interventions and certain attention and school psychiatrists, psychologists, maybe medical profession intervene to say that a child needs or has certain needs, has certain special needs. And yes, Many times the teachers have a, a, a problem distinguishing between is it a language issue or is it a special need disability issue. And the way they can tell is by a lot of times if the, uh, the assessments are not readily available, although most schools do have those, 
and you, uh, the laws require that you bring together a team of parents, teachers, experts in the disabilities, experts in language to decide what kind of an issue it is. But for example, in the very early grade, uh, what you need to do is you just need to give the student a lesson and just watch it. And if over time they learn to speak English and they learn academics quickly and they're not falling behind on their skills and they're learning quickly, you know it wasn't a special need area. It was just a language issue. But if you see mm -hmm. that most students are learning at a certain level, other ELs, and then there's a particular child who's falling behind both in language and in doing the content or in doing the activities, then you have to dig deeper to see if there's other issues other than language. The same thing with uh, uh, gifted and highly talented students. Many times, because they don't have the language, the students can express their high skills. And so either they're misguided, misanalyzed, uh, misassigned, and uh, unless the parents advocate and say, you know, my child knows all these numbers, all the alphabet, he can read and write already in the language, even though he's in preschool, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, in, if they're in high school and they're highly skilled mathematics, they learn the, to read on their own, they taught themselves mathematics, they teach themselves uh, geometry, geography, and all those things, or they're highly talented in the arts and the music and sports, and teachers need to pay, again, special attention to those students because they are at the other extreme. But it's easy to neglect them because they don't speak English or they're not speaking the academic English that you would expect for that grade level for that particular student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, one thing, one of the similarities that um, I saw at the Department of Justice between the provision of educational services for students with disabilities and students who are learning English is that U.S. schools have to provide extra support and services for such students so that ultimately the students won't actually need that additional support. And I think that is the that piece is the, the missing part of the conversation is that it ultimately um you know the schools should be working to transition children out of needing these additional supports for you know for students with disabilities um that that may not happen um and and you know it may not be possible to get to that point but certainly with students who are learning english that can be the goal will you talk about that as a goal and and are are schools embracing that are they aware of are educators aware of that goal yes they are aware uh for several reasons uh, the law requires that you provide special support for these categories of students. And then also, both federal and state governments provide supplemental funding for you to provide those services. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, to begin with, every student who attends a school in our public school system uh, draws what we call ADA, average daily attendance uh, fee. 
whether or not that child is learning, that school is still receiving money for that school for that child. Whether or not he's an English learner or a gifted student or a student special needs, the the district has a legal responsibility to provide services to the child or that mm-hmm. student. And in addition, for generating ADA daily average attendance, which could go from four thousand to nine to twelve thousand dollars per child, depending on your state. On top of that, they get money because these kids, these kids are English language learners and need special assistance, or they get special monies because they are special education students and they are protected under the IDEA legislation or the English Learner Services legislation or under Title I or under the uh, No Child Left Behind law that currently exists uh, or under several multiple laws that individual states maintain. So there's really no excuse but there are challenges, you know. Sometimes you might have students who just came in and it's a new language you don't know anything about. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, for example, when we first had moms in the state of California, mm-hmm. it took us a while to identify teachers who spoke the language or community resources, community people who spoke that language, identify textbook supplies, those kinds of things. But you can still intervene using other kinds of strategies, and you need to help those students from the day they start with you because, like I said, districts have a legal contract with state and federal governments to provide those services mm-hmm. to those students. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're right that it can be very complicated. I think the law, the law is um, a standard, and it tries to set the same standard for every child that that schools should provide equal access to educational opportunity for every child. I, I read, you know, speaking of the Hmong population uh, in California, um, I read a book when uh, the spirit catches you and you fall down, and it's about the disconnect, the cultural disconnect between a Hmong family and the hospital providers, health providers in California who were trying to provide services to um, among um, the the daughter of the family, um, the youngest daughter of the family, and she had some very severe health needs. And the law seemed to say very clearly that the medical providers were obligated to serve her in a particular way, but the cultural customs... Um, of the Hmong family were such that they were um, resistant to some of those medical procedures and in many cases didn't understand what what was being requested or what was being recommended by the doctors. Um, and so I think, yeah. you know, the law certainly is important, um, but it, it, it also can't spell out every, every situation. Well, um, I'm not sure I would use the word resistant as it is. It's just uh, different, and it can be uh, very uh, important. We had a community in the Monterey area where uh, the the health community were concerned because most uh, uh, Hispanic women 
will not go to the doctor during their pregnancy period. And then they found out that the reason they couldn't go or they would not go is because in their culture, and this was a, a subpopulation of Hispanic women from an Indian village, uh, uh, their custom said that they could not go to any medical doctor or be treated anywhere unless the husband was present. And, of course, the, pre- the husband worked all day. And there were no services in the, being provided by the hospitals in the evening, and the doctors were not available in the evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, so when that found that out, and they were able to provide those services when the husband was there, then they started going. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's just a, they need to understand, we need to understand and open up to many more cultures because we think that everybody is just going to easily fall into our ways and, Sometimes that's true, you know, if it's uh, second, third generation or people who have traveled all over the world and they're maybe more aware of these things. But the immigrant and the ELL population are not necessarily uh, that grouping of people who who are that aware. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, talking about the law, there have been efforts made in states uh, around the country to eliminate or prohibit the use of bilingual instruction. And I'm thinking right now of Massachusetts, which is uh, the first that comes to mind, that that have said, that have been, um, you know, by voter referendum to say teachers are not allowed to use students' native language, ELL students' native language to instruct in the classroom. What are your thoughts about that, about okay. that so type I'm of not, movement? I'm not, I'm not intimately familiar with that, but I am mm-hmm. I am familiar with the federal laws and the uh, um, that protect the students, the laws that have to do mm-hmm. with equal access and equal opportunity. And what those say is that you are supposed to that equal access and equal opportunity. It's not just sitting the student in the classroom. He has to understand instruction, and he has to be provided strategies that give him access to really learning. And in some cases, you don't have a choice but to use the primary language. Now, your objectives could be different. Your goals could be different. Um, your goal could be to use the primary language as a support, it doesn't have to be the goal to make the child bilingual and keep providing all of the instruction in both languages. That's not necessarily the goal, but at the beginning, at least, when the child needs it, you need to provide some kind of primary support. And it could be, you know, it could be maybe a tutor, it could be an instructional assistant, or maybe they need it in mathematics, but not in maybe they need it in history, but not mathematics. Maybe they don't need it in PE, but they might need it in social sciences. Uh, they may need it in science because it has there's so much language embedded. Uh, they might need it in art. And, and so the districts have a lot of choices, but one choice is not, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to, or because mm-hmm. I think that they're in this country now, they, they better hurry up and learn English. That's, that's mm-hmm. not an option. And, and sometimes people misunderstand. I think they even misunderstand the, the law that we passed in California. Many people call it the English-only law, and it's not what it says. What basically the law in California says is that the parents 
not the school administrators or the teachers, are the ones who should decide whether or not a child should be enrolled in programs where they use the primary language for instruction, and it is the parents who should decide how long they want their child to receive those support services. Well, mm-hmm. some teachers were uh, uh, went as far as to say, oh, I just heard that if I use Spanish, they're going to fire me. I mean, I don't know where they get these extreme interpretations, <laughs> but that's not what the law says. What the law says is it's not up to the teacher to decide. I mean, even once you identify the student and you say, you know, this student is an English language learner because he doesn't speak English and because at home all they speak is another language. So we recommend that he be placed in a program where he receives services in both languages or that he needs primary language support. You can recommend, but it's still up to the parent to say, I agree with you, my child needs that. Or you know what, even if he struggles and if he's lost half of the time, as long as you can give him additional help, I want him in an English only. That's what the law Mm -hmm. says. It doesn't say that, you know, teachers are going to be fired because they use the primary language or that all of a sudden Mm -hmm. California and Massachusetts are an English only state. They may say that English is their priority, which is a little different than saying English only, uh, versus saying, okay, we want every child to be fully bilingual, because uh, that's a different goal, too. Uh, right. But the law says that at a minimum, you have to provide every child with access to an equal education. And for English language learners, it means a lot of support to learn academic English, and if the child doesn't understand anything, then you have to use some kind of primary language support. Just like mainstream for students with special needs doesn't mean you just throw them in a mainstream regular old classroom and do nothing. It means that they will be with other children who don't have special needs. They're going to be mainstream, <coughs> excuse me, but they still need special attention, special strategies, and special support. Mm-hmm. That's what they mean. You know, and for a while, they're mainstream to some teachers that, oh, we don't have to do anything. You know, but they were certainly ready to receive the funding, the extra funding. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, it takes a little while for people to understand what we're all legally responsible to do on behalf of all students mm-hmm. in our public schools. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, thinking about parents and families, um, parents and families of of English language learner students and, and parents and families who may themselves be learning English have actually have numerous rights under the, under federal law to, you know, for example, receive information in their native language and to be involved in choosing the appropriate program as you as you've indicated in California for their children. And I think sometimes there can be um, misunderstandings or um, disconnects. And I think, you know, you may have families who, as you said, may interact with schools and schooling in ways that may not match um, expectations in their schools. How have you involved families and parents in your work, and how are, are parents of ELL students critical to student success? Well... You know, 
all over the world, when parents are involved directly in the education of their children and are under, highly aware of what kind of teachers the students have and what kind of instructional materials they're using in the children, the expectations of the schools, the students do well and the students do better. Uh, what we have in this country is a, a variety of roles and expectations for our parents. And sometimes the staff is confused and sometimes the parents are confused. For example, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes all we want the parents to do is just come to school so they understand that we have report cards and we want to explain to them what the report card is. Other times we want to say to parents that any time they want to come and visit the classroom, they're welcome. But we need to tell them what that is because when parents sometimes don't understand, they might just show up in the classroom at any time, unexpected, unannounced, et cetera, et cetera. So when you say mm -hmm. this, we have an open-door policy, it still means you have to check at the door, you have to check with the principal. In some cases, because of security, now we have to fingerprint people. Uh, we mm -hmm. have to announce you. It's a courtesy to tell the teacher that you're coming and what would you want to see, you know, at what time you want to come, that simple stuff. So even being involved with the parents is one thing. Another one is uh, explaining homework to the parents so that in some capacity the parents are able to help the, the children. Let's say that the parent is totally non-English speaking. It still doesn't mean that the parent can participate in providing a safe and nice environment for the children to do their homework, feeding the children, uh, you know, making sure they eat, making sure they sleep on a regular hour. Uh, uh, you know, my parents couldn't speak English, but my mother would ask me every night, where's your homework? Do your homework. Mm -hmm. And if I said I already did it, she would say, I want you to read to me out loud. And she didn't understand what I was reading, but she could tell mm -hmm. when I would make mistakes and she would tell me to reread it again. Or she would say, well, if you already did your homework, I want you to rewrite it again because it looks kind of sloppy. And I want you to have neat homework for your teachers. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, there are different ways that parents can do this. A lot of times the parents are highly schooled in their own language. So mm -hmm. it's not like they are not schooled at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one area. Another area is when you ask parents to come and participate in committees like PTA or advisory committees, or you just want them to come and help you with a field trip or just come and help you with a... Uh, that you're going to have or that kind of thing. Well, that's a different role. Or many laws require that you have advisory committees. They, the law requires that you have advisory committees and that you have to provide those meetings in a language that the parents can understand so that they can have meaningful, meaningful participation. And then there's other laws, like for example for the special ed, uh, special education children, for English language learners and for migrant students and for gifted and talented students, the laws require that the parents have a face of actual decision-making in some of the activities of those programs. Hmm. So, you know, you can't just pretend they're volunteers all the time and then invite them to participate at certain levels but don't explain to them what their actual roles are going to be so the parents are not confused. And then secondly, uh, training. You've got to train the parents to be able to participate in that role. Because as I was mm -hmm. saying earlier, 
maybe the parent has a lot of experience participating in community advising groups or in their country they participate in certain groups, or maybe they have none. And so I think uh, we we are we have that responsibility to involve our parents and also to help them become effective in their involvement. So there are mm-hmm. just different layers of involvement. And uh, many times a very busy teacher is always also the one responsible for involving the parents and doing committees. And the poor teacher is too busy to really attend to all of what is required to invite parents ensure their participation, uh, ensure the documents are properly translated if that's required, and that the parents feel good about the participation so that they don't end up being uh, burdened more than uh, really, really partners in the education of the children, which all of them want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think a partnership between parents and teachers is so instrumental to ensuring that students are paving or guided on on how to create a pathway for themselves into a successful, you know, into successful life choices. Um, Yes. So will you talk about, uh, you mentioned earlier gifted education and especially with subjective identification measures, usually teacher identification and referral for gifted education, how how should schools make sure that they are appropriately identifying ELL students as gifted? Well, I think the first step is to talk to the parents because uh, when the kids are young, the parents know the children better than anybody else. And most parents mm-hmm. can tell when a child is going beyond the call of duty, where he is functioning or she is functioning beyond other children in the household or beyond other children that they play with. So mm-hmm. it works start with a parent. And then the other one is um, as they get a little older to actually identify them. Um, and there are different states now that have bilingual psychologists and psychiatrists and also um, instruments that do assess in the primary language. And then the other one is, as they get into, especially like in the uh, middle grades and high school, because they have different teachers, maybe they don't do so good in math or they hate math, but boy, they shine in history, they shine in uh, physical education, they shine in the clubs, they're excellent in... uh, in the arts, they're excellent in theater. And so when somebody's that extreme, you have to ask yourself the question, well, how can he be so bright and memorize all of Shakespeare for the theater class, but he can't read a short essay on Shakespeare in the literature class? Mm-hmm. You know? So right. uh, it, uh, you you have to have... Uh, you have to rely on all of your counselors and uh, all your teachers and the, and the parents who know that student. And also, if there are formal instruments and uh, formal assessment procedures, all of that together gives you a better picture. And as the students get older, you can ask them too because they're pretty good at explaining. If you see that a student has a fantastic vocabulary in the primary language and he can explain everything in the primary language, beyond mm-hmm. other kids, 
then you should ask yourself, well, maybe it's just a matter that he can't do it in English because he's still learning English and can't express himself so well. Plus, a lot of kids mm. who are highly gifted, they learn English a lot faster than not only other ELs, but faster than gate students who are English-only speakers because mm-hmm. gate students who speak two languages have a lot more uh, cognitive skills, and that's been shown by mm-hmm. research. But if you're bilingual, mm-hmm. you have many more cognitive and literacy skills than, and strategies than if you're only English-only speaker or only speak one language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you would just uh, briefly talk about some of the different ELL programs available to support English learners in the classroom. So, for instance, what is sheltered instruction, what is dual language instruction, and some of the other types of instruction available? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's uh, let's see, how, how would I explain this? Sometimes we get a little lost with the titles of the classroom, but mm-hmm. when you actually go and visit the classrooms, it's really difficult to tell, oh, this is an immersion classroom, this is a shelter instruction classroom, this is a dual language classroom. I mean, I have visited mm-hmm. thousands of classrooms, and I can go from one to the other, and they tell me the title, but when I see what they're doing, uh, it doesn't either reflect the title or there's not that much differences. But here's what the little differences are. The differences really are due to how do you treat the primary language, how do you use it, and what is your expectation for the students keeping their academic, uh, keeping up their primary language or not. So that is what one factor that, distrib- that distinguishes programs. The okay. other one is the skills and preparation of the teachers. Are they all English as a second language teachers, ESL teachers? Or are they all bilingual teachers who handle both languages equally well? Hmm. And then the other one is, is the instruction all in English or is the instruction given in both languages? And by instruction, I mean the various content areas, not just ESL or not just math. But, I mean, in what language is science being provided? In what language is history being provided? And it tells you more about the goal of those programs, the capacity of those programs, maybe the quality of those programs, and the expectations that both the schools and community have for those students. I think that's really important. And, mm-hmm. of course, there's the legal responsibility of identifying before you put them in there and then reclassifying them once you think that they should go into English-only classrooms or other kinds of classrooms that you have prepared for them. But I would think that what distinguishes them is the role you give the primary language and the goal for either transitioning them or for bilingualism at the end of their schooling. Thank you very much, Dr. Maria. Maria Trejo is an expert in educational services and needs of ELL ELL students struggling readers, and equity issues for all students. Thank you so much for being here this evening, Dr. Trejo. Thank you very much for including me. This is a very uh, important topic, and I know that uh, a lot of people are interested in it, so we we should always continue these kinds of conversations. Thank you. Absolutely. Sure. 
You are now officially certified know-it-alls about students who are acquiring the English language. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.